Hello, and welcome to Local Legends. I'm Chi, outdoor fitness coach, and I am your host. Local Legends is a conversation with passionate cyclists who impact riding in Southern California, and specifically, San Diego. Here comes my next local legend. Welcome to episode 12 with Chris Horner, a former pro cyclist of 25 years, a 2012 Olympian. In addition to racing the Tour de France seven times, he won the 2013 Vuelta España at the age of 41, becoming the oldest and only American to ever win the Grand Tour. Interviewing Chris reminds me of the movie Almost Famous of a 16-year-old kid hired by Rolling Stones to interview a rock band. I was beyond stoked and scared to sit across from a world-famous athlete. Here's the thing. In addition to being starstruck, I'm embarrassed that my knowledge of road racing is very limited. I didn't grow up with road racing in my family or a group of friends. I grew up watching the World Cup. I knew what the tour was, but that was about it. And as I've gotten older, I learned about the classics, but road riding isn't my forte. So I brushed up on my road racing history and went for it. Chris Horner grew up in San Diego, spending much of his youth riding bikes around town and to the beach. In this interview, we discuss his first bike, his first race of the Decade and Tenado Grand Fondo, the influence of the military family on his riding, why he loves riding in San Diego and why he thinks it's the best training ground. He shares the story of the ballsy decision to give up biking one last shot and stepped away from a job. We discuss the level of fitness and training of a pro racer, his view on nutrition, and his love for candy bars. And as a retired racer, what he misses about racing and how he stays in the cycling world as an NBC sports commentator and with his YouTube channel and the butterfly effect where he comments on races. Let me give you a little backstory to how this came together. In December of last year, I had my fourth Local Legends episode with Pete Thull, a writer who I have a lot of respect for, not just for his writing and skills, but his easy and kind manner. And during our interview, he kept mentioning Chris Horner. And at the time, I thought he was saying Chris Horner. He would say, you want a local legend? You should interview him. Heck, so I sent him a message on Instagram, but to no avail, nothing. Next time I saw Pete, he asked me, and I told him about the message so he gives me Chris Horner's number. I sent him a message and little did I know, the next thing I know is that he is giving me a call. Chris Horner is calling me. Super friendly and nice guy. And he also adds that he doesn't understand what Instagram DM means. So we set a date. We planned to meet at his friend's house in Del Mar Mesa a week later. This interview was recorded in early January while he was here on holiday visiting from his new hometown, Bend, Oregon. I wanted to release this episode while the spring classics were underway. It was quite the experience to talk to Chris and get a unique perspective of what it takes to race at the world tour level. Enjoy my next local legend. Chris Horner, uh, road, a road cyclist with a career of 25 years. He did the Vuelta, won uh, Tour de France and um, Tour de California when it was here. Yeah. And the Giro, did the Giro one year, but didn't finish. Did the okay. tour seven years and then did the Volta a ton too. <laughs> so, which was interesting is, cause I know you're from San Diego. So I want to ask you about that. You weren't born in San Diego. No, I was born in Japan, Okinawa. Yeah. Military family. Okay. And, and I'm here in San Diego because military family too. Okay. So, uh, my dad was air force. He passed away when I was three. My mom remarried. Uh, to a Navy guy, 
Okay. Uh, he worked Master Chief Navy, so he was over at Point Loma. So we were back here in San Diego for most of it. Spent a little bit of time in Connecticut, two mm -hmm. years in Connecticut, one year in Virginia. So a little bit of my accent, I think, I picked up <laughs> is from East Coast. Even though I've, I've elementary school, middle school, high school, lived here for 30 something <laughs> years, it must have been some like golden period when kids pick up their accent or something. Because even when I was here in San Diego, many times people would be, Where are you from? I'm like, From here. You but do have a three little. Years, three years in Virginia, or, you know, three years at East Coast, one Virginia, two in Connecticut was enough to pick up some kind of weird accent that's a little bit different than socal <laughs> so that's that a lot of times that that when i grew up here people would be a little like where are you from i'm like from here <laughs> so you grew up when did you move here when you were three? Oh, or no, i would have probably been here i did first grade here so okay you know, you're talking five six six or something like that when i first came to san diego okay and then and then spent most of my years uh, near Terrasana, Murphy Canyon, split the difference between the two. When my stepdad was in the Navy, we were living okay. in military housing, so we were in Murphy Canyon. Once he retired, we moved to Terrasanta. Um, when my wife, I moved to Bend, Oregon in 2000, and then when okay. my wife started law school, we had she had options, a lot of different options of schools to pick from, and, and she had a full ride so I told her if you can get down to San Diego we'll buy a house in, mm. in Terrasana again I know the area of course mm -hmm. I'm from there I love the area so she got into USD and I bought a house again in Terrasana and had that for seven or eight years whatever it happened to be I can't remember the time but it was right there off of Claremont Mesa Boulevard just as you enter into Terrasana so I find it really comfortable I love the area yeah I grew up there so of course you had that little bit of niche and that that deep down feeling of home when you're yeah. walking around the area and stuff. But all of San Diego, of course, I've lived in different parts of San Diego, Mara Mesa, Spring Valley, um, spent some time over here in Del Mar and stuff. And then of course, most at home in Terrasana. Great. And you went, you graduated from Sierra high school? Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I lived in Terrasana, but, um, uh, that's good. So did uh, you, so you use, know it? Yeah, I yeah, do. Right. So did you play sports when you were in high school? I did some wrestling, Sarah High was 8th through 12th. It wasn't 9th uh -huh. oh, through 12th. Okay. It was 8th through 12th then. We were the last, I was the last generation or the last year to, to do 8th grade through 12th there <laughs> at the high school. And so as an 8th grader, I was doing some wrestling. And then when I became 9th grader, I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't click with the coach at all. Okay. And so when I thought about it, I preferred to ride my bike. And I was riding my bike since I was 13, so a long time. Before that, of course, you're riding BMX like every kid is doing, um, just for fun around the neighborhood and stuff. But then once I was in high school, if you were either gonna wrestle, there's not really time to do both. And mm -hmm. I was, I've had a job at the bike shop working since I was um, 15 too. So there wasn't time really to do both. And I just didn't gel along with the wrestling coach. Did like the sport. I thought that was an amazing sport because you stay super fit, you're busy all the whole day, you're, the yeah. whole diet, it's much like cycling in, in a lot of ways in terms of the 100% commitment 24 mm -hmm. hours a day. Mm -hmm. So I like the sport, but I didn't like, um, we had a coach that I liked and then he left and went to do softball and stuff. And then we had another coach and I just didn't gel with the next coach. And I thought I'd much rather continue riding my bike at that point in time. So I did. 
And then how, what introduced you to cycling? Like what, what clicked for you? Was it biking around town or was it a sport right away? So my brother liked it. My brother-in-law, who was, I can't remember if he was married to my sister at the time or not. I think they had just recently been married. So I'm 10 years old or something and over at their place and looking at his bike, I thought it was really cool. This is when we were in Connecticut and he was, had bought a bike and he's riding to and from the military base he's military too and then my brother when we moved here to san diego he got a, a schwinn peloton it was one of their top of the line bikes at the time from that schwinn made before they had you know financial problems beautiful bike fell in love with it bought my own bike when i turned 13 it was a schwinn sprint versus schwinn world but i didn't like the color so my mom exchanged <laughs> it for a red one which was a Schwinn Sprint, and then I just rode it all over San Diego. I would oh. ride to the beach, I'd ride, I'd ride meet my mom at her work and, we, and have lunch with her, and then I'd go to the movies, and then I'd jump on my bike and ride back home. So I'd ride from UTC back to Terrasana, and then sometimes I'd ride from Terrasana, oftentimes to the beach, because that's right. what you do when you're a kid, right? So you go to the beach, hang out at the beach a little bit, turn around, jump on your bike, ride back home. Mm -hmm. So you're riding 20, 40 miles a day, you're 13 years old. Then you start expanding and out, and you start going up to 67 in Ramona and start doing some loops. So you're doing 50 miles and 70-mile rides and stuff. And and the first Grand Fondo rides were the Mexico rides where you're uh, Rosarita de Ensenada, okay, yeah. de Ensenada, that kind of stuff. And because my stepdad was military, he had a lot of friends that rode. Military guys, there's a lot of military guys that ride bikes because they, they use them to commute and stuff. And then they start riding them more and more. And of course, we're talking about the 80s. So yep. San Diego was a beautiful place oh. to ride bikes. It's still the best place, I think, in my mind, in the world to ride bikes. In terms of for training, okay, you go to Switzerland, you go to some places in Europe, some places in France specifically. It doesn't get more beautiful than Switzerland, but it rains all the time. Yeah. When you really account for the quality of riding in San Diego, the amount of sun, the weather, the temperature, all that stuff. I think it's the best in the world. There's no doubt. And and you've been around the world. <laughs> I've been everywhere. Yeah. San so Diego's this is, the best. That is quite I was always amazed when I was coming up racing that there were more pros that lived here. Huh. A lot of the pros would be in Boulder. And I couldn't understand yeah. living in Boulder. It didn't make sense to me. Is it nice? It's very nice. But as a professional athlete, you need to train every day. You need the sun to be there every day. You need mm -hmm. the temperature to be there every day. Specifically, you need to avoid rain because mm -hmm. you just can't get the same kind of training in the rain or mm -hmm. you won't train in the rain, mm -hmm. one or the other, depending on what type of athlete you are. And so all around, I thought San Diego was the best, especially in the 80s. It couldn't get yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, now there's more traffic. It's a little more like L.A., of course. So it, it's a little more complicated now, but as long as you stay east or if you're willing to, to just deal with with more of the lights and have the cars around you it hasn't changed like even up to now i trained 80 miles today and even today it's not like it affected my training mm -hmm. does it affect the cars that affect your your mood of course but does it affect your training not really much because the lane the bike lanes are so good the roads are so wide mm -hmm. there's so many different roads so for that option i think san diego it's still the best yeah it just used to be so head and shoulders the best and now because of the traffic okay it's still really really good 
And if you need to get fit, I think it's the best place to be. Yeah, and so you, were, you went from Rosarita, and then you were talking about here. So when you were 13, you did the Fondo? You yeah, went down? I did. Yeah, so my stepdad, like I said, he's military, and his friends said, hey, I'm 13 years old. His friends, of course, they hear the story that, you know, the, the chief or senior chief, whatever my dad was at that point in time, was his son. He's got a son that rides bikes. They're talking. They're chatting. My stepdad find some military friends that that he's drinking and hanging out with and working with and you know it is the military family they do everything together right uh-huh. they all hang out it's it's picnic parties on the weekends together it's working monday through friday together they're they're always together all the families and so it doesn't take very long before they find out that his son's got a bike and they ask me to come out and do one of the grand fondo rides and so rosarita ensenada ducati ensenada those those are the first you know, the first rides that mm-hmm. I start to do. And they're massive, right? Yeah. I mean, we're talking 15,000 riders yeah. in these, in, at this point in time, you know, this yeah. before the internet and all that yeah. stuff. And you know, we're talking the eighties, yes. there's no cell phones, there's no nothing. And you just, you, 13 year old kid, you hop, you drive across the border as easy as it was back in those days, yep. super easy, much easier than it is now. And you get there on the street and then they, you take off of yeah. 15,000 riders or something like that. And so it was such an experience for me because I had never done anything like that in San Diego. I hadn't really done mm-hmm. group rides yet or anything. So it was my first time experiencing the whole shebang of a grand fondo or a group ride or fun ride, whatever your uh, <laughs> listeners want to think about calling it. At that time, though, it's as big as it gets, right? There's talking 15,000 people on the street. And... My dad's military friends at one point in time just take a nap under the tree. <laughs> you know, we're halfway in the ride and they pull over and take a nap under the tree. And what did you do? I took. Just oh, you took a nap. I didn't take a nap because I wasn't <laughs> tired, but but I hung out under the tree, waited for them to take a nap, and then we get back on the bikes and I end up losing them at some point in time along the ride, anyways, because there's just so many people that riders had come in between us, and then I just lost them and you uh-huh. just. You go to Ensenada and you you get there at the finish of the ride. And Thirteen years old, you just look around, and then finally my stepdad um, Perry shows up and and finds me. And you did it. Yeah, so you did it. So it was fun, fun experience, and and of course, all the group rides are more or less kind of like that. You know, um, it's just a different amount of atmosphere and intensity depending on which particular event you're at, but as a you know 13 14 15 year old kid when i'm here living in san diego those those are the rides you would do because they were so popular yeah so so when you were 13 and you did that ride how did you what did you think of next did someone find you and go this this kid has potential or did you were you starting to watch the tour de france like did you ever think at that age that you would be where you are now no i thought as i was racing <clears throat> they have the San Diego Velodrome here. Yeah. And so I was uh, training. I'd ride up there and just do laps for fun and stuff. <laughs> and I worked at the bike shop when I was 15. So you start realizing that there's cycling clubs. So the first adventure was the Cabrillo Cycling Club. Okay. Was my first cycling club I rode for here in San Diego. Okay. Uh, just a bunch of young kids. And then they're like, hey, you want to race? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So I'll race. And I can't remember, maybe I was 15 or something, a junior, but give or take 15. And so we go to the first bike races, first criterium, 
it was at the ziggurat off of the five before you get into um before the five and 405 meet okay okay a few miles before that it was called the ziggurat it was it was a famous one back in the day because they raced there all the time it was a circuit uh not really a criteria not quite it's more of a circuit than a criterium because it's not you know real tight and technical it's just go up a little hill and then circle back okay stuff and so i did that and did some races on the velodrome but in those days they didn't have very many juniors okay so it wasn't fun they they (laughs) they put the juniors with the senior cat fours and the guys are just so much bigger and stronger that they would just you know blow your doors off so i caught fell out of the track fast i just didn't like it um and then focus more on the road. And I just rode for fun. So I would keep riding for fun and riding for fun. But I never thought about being a European pro. And you have to remember in the 80s, there wasn't, it was wide world of sports, like an hour episode of the Tour de France for, they were covering the whole week of the Tour de France in an hour, and they were showing you the winery for 30 <laughs> minutes of it. So you literally had five, 15 minutes worth of coverage of the Tour de France. And of course, information came slow. I didn't know about the classics mm-hmm. and big one-day races, and then of course the week-long stage races like Paris Nice. I never heard of those. I, I heard of the Tour de France, but that was really about it. You know, maybe you heard of Paris Roubaix, of course, and if, maybe Liège, Best on Liège, and, and those type of races. But you didn't even get the results of those until you got yeah. si- until you got the Velo News magazine. A month or two later after the race was over it wasn't like they were streaming and you didn't get videos of it or anything like that so. oh absolutely i totally remember watching it on tv <laughs> yeah. and it's nothing like it is now yeah nothing right we got non-stop coverage right now when i when i'm doing the youtube channel my youtube channel right now i can watch four hours of a six-hour bike race mm-hmm. and if it's a really big one-day race or a big or giro tour de france something like that you can watch all of it from kilometer yeah. zero all the way to finish living here in the U.S. It's, yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. That's really new, though. That's just even happening just the last, what, four or five years or something like that. So. Yeah, so so you're a young kid. You're, you're riding your bike for fun. You're doing these races on these clubs. I know we're fast-forwarding, but when – did somebody help you, like, finally get – what was – what did it look like to go from where you were from your club to – pro because it sounded like you did you go to college no i didn't do college so you got swept up right after high school uh it did work that way (laughs) no (laughs) so after high school i was still working at the bike shop by the time i'm about 20 i was 19 years old and a friend of mine stan bunnies was a local rider here okay big time local rider here in san diego and he he was doing construction work so he found me a construction job and so i stopped working at the bike shop i started doing construction and construction meant you couldn't ride your bike anymore because it's feast or famine with construction you're either full board working the minute the sun comes up all the way the sun goes down and the weekends i mean it may be a half day on sunday but you're working every day nonstop. So there's always, there was no time to ride the bike so the bike's kind of disappearing and i'm i'm working construction and then the construction work dries up. This is what was happening in the 80s is, you know, you're full board, mm-hmm. nonstop working or there's no work. Mm-hmm. And so the foreman basically tells me, my boss tells me, he just says, I'll give you a call when there's work. 
he liked the work I was doing for him, but now there's no more work. He's mm -hmm. not working, I'm not working, it's the same thing. So you go on unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> so I went into this job thinking it's gonna be like a career thing. You start doing some construction, you learn a trade, you move sure. a little bit further, and then the work dries up, there's no work, and I start riding my bike again, because that's all I really want to do anyway. So I was, but I had no idea of being pro, just riding my bike. And so October comes, it's my birthday, and I'm turning 20, and I'm at home, I'm on unemployment, I'm riding my bike. It's kind of a bad, bad birthday, really. Turn 20, was like, <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, 20 years old, I'm unemployed. <laughs> and, but you had some money in the bank because you did some construction work, right? And you know, the ideal is the construction work's gonna come back and you're gonna learn this trades. But a few weeks go by, and now a month goes by, a month and a half goes by, and all I'm doing is riding my bike which is really fun, but you're not making any progress in life, right? And I just turned 20. So it was a little bit of a depressing moment at the time. Uh, had, you know, of course you're riding your bike, so it's not crazy depressing, but you're having those moments. Yeah, like what am I gonna do? The quiet time of the day when the demons come out. <laughs> so you can, uh, you can really see where, where there could be some demons when it gets later at night and there's nothing to do and you're, you're not making any money and you're, you're, you know, you're waiting for your unemployment check to come in the mail. And so finally, though, I start getting pretty fast and now the new season is going to start. Mm -hmm. And I realize I'm just a little ways away from the you know, month or two away from the season starting and we still don't have any work. So, but I'm getting pretty fast and I'm like, well, I might as well see where the cycling can go because that's what I really want to do anyways. And so I call up my boss and I say, hey, thanks, but I'm not interested in doing any more construction. Yes, you took a leap. I took a leap. I went back to work at the bike shop, mm -hmm. um, part-time, full-time, part-time, on and off all the time. It was <laughs> however it would work out, however you could pay the bills, basically. And so the first bike race we're doing at USD Grand Prix, mm -hmm. and I'm there with, with your boy Pete Dole. Awesome. So we're riding, to, we're riding down the bike trail over to usd so we can do the race there and it had been a winter where the swamis now i was riding for swamis and so it had been a winter where all of us were really focused and training it was a it was a club team but all of us wanted to be pro yeah i'm riding with a bunch of guys uh pete's about nine ten years older than me so i'm 20 29 give or take and all the other guys are about 29, 30-ish or something like that. So they're all kind of taking me under their wing. Uh, it's Pete Thole, it's Rich Meeker, Todd Bryden, uh, you know, the whole crew there at Swamis. And we're riding to the start, and, and Pete Thole's like, this will be interesting to see now, like, who's <laughs> actually really good. First day I crashed, but the second day I went. And I won in a break of, there's five of us and there's two Sheriff, uh, Chevrolet LA Sheriff riders, which was the big local pro team at the time. Um, and, I, and so I took all the preems and won the race. And so from that moment on, you start thinking like, oh, maybe this will work out. But even then I'm only thinking domestic style. You're never thinking over in Europe, you're just thinking domestic. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until 1996 that I'm doing Super Week there's a French director, Lan Gallopin, and he's there training. He's, he's there helping Lars Michelson, who's a top pro over in Europe, get ready for the 96 Olympics, which were in Atlanta. And so I'm up the road solo in one of these crits, and that guy comes up to me, I drop him. Another guy comes up, I drop him. Another guy comes up, I drop him. 
throughout the whole crate, I'm off the front for three-fourths of it. I get caught, then I get back off the front, and I don't know, I finish fourth or something like that. And then he comes up to the van afterwards and says, hey, I'm Alain Gallopin. I'm putting together a French team next year with the Mark Matteo brothers. I'm interested in you, but I can't understand a word he's saying. <laughs> like, I can't understand anything. He's, he's speaking broken English, right? He's French, fully 100% French, and he's speaking English, but I can't under, I can't even make out how he pronounces his name. I'm having the hardest problem. What? Huh? What? I mean, if you guys, anybody that watches my YouTube channel knows I can't pronounce a name to save my life. So, so I'm having the hardest problem. Finally, he says, go find Lars Michelson and chat with him. So, the next, that was at the start of, before the start of the race, during the race, I find Lars, hey, who's this French guy? He tells me about it. I go, okay, so I, I go visit on the first rest day of the race. There is an Omnium race, so you can skip days and there's a rest days in between. I chat well, right to his place where they're staying. I chat with him. He tells me about this project with Francis Dejure, FDJ, their team's called now. And then one day or two days later is the road race and it's me and Lance Armstrong in the break. Lance attacks, I'm the only guy that can go after him, and then it's a one-on-one, -on -one, we're battling out, and Lance beats me in the sprint. But after that, basically the contract was done. <laughs> so that as soon as I got out of, yeah, as soon as I got out of there, money. the contract came. So. Oh my, this is like six months when you were sitting in your living room going, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Yeah, I mean, this is, so, no, no, this is some years after that. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Um, so from, from 20 years old, I was starving cyclist all the way from 20 to about 24. So four uh, okay, years, I'm okay, starving. Okay, okay, four years, I'm riding with small pro teams or amateur. And let's be fair. They're all, they're all amateur teams. So from 20 all the way to 24, I'm riding with amateur teams. And we're okay. traveling a little bit. And then I end up at Super Week where I meet up with okay. Gallopin, the French director with FDJ. Got it. And that's when the contract shows up. Um, so it's 1996. So, yep. So I would say from 1990 is when I graduated high school. 1991 is when I was doing the USD Grand Prix mm. race. And it took okay. until 97 when I have a, uh, a contract with FDJ that happened because of and that years. was the big break to that get was you the big break to get me over to europe so 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 i'm i'm a cycling coach and my big thing is like the training you know right. and, and the training that you guys do at that level is beyond what i can imagine um because my athletes are working yeah, they, they, they work they can't so so humor me you're 24 25 what are you how are you training for this or and and did, what did we what were you doing before did somebody come well, in and help you with a plan no when i've had coaches it's never worked out good for me <laughs> so so i've i've i listen to what all writers are always telling me in terms of what they're doing yeah. and stuff and then i incorporate what i want out of it okay when I've used coaches, it's never gone good. So I don't, I, I've never liked coaches, but I believe there's a place for coach. The only problem is, is whether or not if you have a good coach or a bad coach. Okay. And so there's a lot of bad coaches. Oh. So the way I, the way I did it is when I started writing, I would watch Pete Thole, mm -hmm. all the Swami's writers, and I would mimic a lot of what they were doing. 
uh, Stan Bunt was a great writer here from domestic, great um, San Diego writer. He mm -hmm. was well known in San Diego. He was like one of the guys to beat. So when I'm riding with those guys, in the old days, it was simple because you had a Tuesday crit, you had the Wednesday group ride, you had a Thursday crit, you had the Saturday Swami's ride, you rode with your club on Sunday. Or you only had to ride Monday and Friday by yourself. <laughs> and so throughout my whole career, I've never done intervals. <laughs> I'm not saying I haven't ridden hard or something. Hi there. Hi. Going on, Steve? Hi, Steve. Aren't you cold? I'm good. Oh, we'll be all right. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, where was that? Um, you're doing. You're you're basically riding with the group. So I'm you riding, you yeah. never did interval. You oh, yeah, exactly. So so I never had to do intervals. So I didn't really necessarily need a coach in those in those times, just because Tuesday crit would give you the intervals. Mm -hmm. Wednesday group ride, you would have hard efforts. Thursday crit would be the intervals. And all I needed to start doing is laying down foundation. Like before I go to the Tuesday crit, you ride 20 or 40 miles to the crit, you do the one hour crit race, and then you ride an hour home. Mm -hmm. So you have 80 miles in, sometimes 100 miles in, plus <laughs> that hour of intensity in the crit and whatever intensity you want to do on your own. But I've never throughout my career mm -hmm. ever done an hour, you know, one minute on, one minute off, two minutes on. I've never had a calendar set up that said on Monday I have to, I, <clears throat> I have to do this. Yeah. And then woke up Monday and felt bad and thought, I still got to do it anyways. I've never had that mentality. Everything's always been tailored to first you need time on the bike mm -hmm. and then you get the quality wherever you can mm -hmm. and whenever it feels appropriate to put mm -hmm. that quality in. Mm -hmm. um, when I've coached people myself, it's always funny because they, they always want like, well, what are we going to do this whole week? I don't know what you're going to do this whole week because <laughs> you don't even know. No one on the planet does because you're not a robot. So everybody has to tailor their plan according to how they feel each day. Now, of course, you have a general ideal of what you want. You, you know, you want if it's January 1st and you haven't ridden your bike at all in December, you want to go out for an hour and a half uh, each day, maybe one or two days you're going to ride two hours max you don't want big intensity because you don't have the base yeah. for that so you have to build the base and mm -hmm. keep building keep building end of january all of a sudden now you're doing some four hours and five hours and then you're into six hour training rides and stuff but for your listeners that's not what you can do with a nine to five job of course you know, yeah but that's when it gets complicated as a yeah. professional rider you have nothing else to do all day so you can rest recover and what I tell everyone right now is I have plenty of time to ride five hours every day, but I don't have time to recover from five hours. Yeah. So that's the problem. It, anyone with a full-time job has still has time to ride a lot, but they don't have the ability to recover from that kind of training. Versus if you're pro and you live the way I lived, all you're doing is training, stretching, sleeping, eating, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And, and occasionally the, the kids and family and stuff will interrupt training and stuff like that but priority one was always the bike unless family became made yeah. itself priority one which can happen with sickness or some you know the yeah. school events or something like that but you yeah. try to limit the amount of times so for me as a kid when I'm when I'm watching 
all the guys from the Swamis and how they train and taking in their information. Yeah. I look at it and I see what they're doing. These guys are all working full-time jobs, right? Yeah. They're 30 years old, give or take. They're all working full-time jobs. And then I'm at times working full-time, at times part-time, and sometimes not working at all. So normally beginning of the season, I wasn't working at all. I get really fit, go to the races, ride really good. And then all of a sudden, one month later, when I got to go back to work at the bike shop, the form drops yeah. immediately. Mm -hmm. And every time I'd show back up at the races, and I remember one guy coming up to me and he said, wow, you always, you're always so strong at the start of the year and then, and then you tailor off. Do you just, you, you're not, you lose motivation or something? I'm like, no, I got a nine to five job. At the beginning of the season, I didn't work for all of January. I started racing in February. Yeah. And so you're fit, but there's only so much money you can make off prize money. You're not pro. I'm still amateur. No one's paying your rent. So you yeah. got to go back to work, right? So you're back to work in March 1st, and then your form is gone by March 15th. <laughs> so, wow. So you, there's so many things, and I, I it's just really interesting to hear um, how you mimic the swamis and you know <clears throat> there wasn't obviously no computers well they were starting to come but we, there's no, no there's training no peaks no. you know so like the training plans are not what they look like right. now you said you would wake up in the morning and if you wouldn't ride if you didn't feel like your body well, i always thought riding was a necessity every day okay so you rode you regardless ride every day but do you ride okay one hour do you okay. ride six hours do you ride intensity do you ride non-intensity that's what you have to decide each day when you get on the bike. And and then when you got to, all I know, okay, so I know it's for a friend that's like 21 days, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm not quite, and you can explain to me the other races, the, the Vuelta, but for the 21-day for the race, do you train or do you just put a lot of volume out before and like how do it's... Do I train before? Well, like oh, how yeah, do absolutely. you, how is it different from... When you had I don't think there's any difference getting ready for the Tour de France as opposed to any other race that's your top priority. Okay. You want to come into it as fit and as best as you mm -hmm. possibly can. A lot of people in my day in the 90s and early 2000, well, my day went 25 years, but <laughs> from, from in early cycling, the mentality was always you come into the Tour de France not quite 100%. Yeah. I never believed in that mentality. I believed you always arrived at any race that's important, that's your main objective, you come into it 100%. Now, you can't be 100% from February to October, yeah. so you have to pick yeah. which races throughout the season are going to be your 100% races. And so it's always the spring races with the mm -hmm. classics, um, Tour of the Basque Country, and then it was going to be the Tour de France. And then if you can peak again... Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Take it wherever you can. Okay. But it's going to just come where it comes. That's fascinating. Normally, normally an athlete can get two peaks during the season. Uh -huh. And if you're lucky, a third might show up. But to, to plan a third is really hard to peak for because when you finish the Tour de France, you might need two weeks off the bike. Not off-off, but not training. Yeah. Quality training where you're just, you know, you wanted to do four hours that day. You knew right away you couldn't. I ended up at 7 11, 45 minutes into it, and you turn around and ride back after a Coke and right. Snickers. Oh, that, and so, that, was the, that was my uh, next question was nutrition. I, there's uh, a rumor about your Coke and Snickers. It's all true. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, again, like when you coming in at such a young age, and then well, 
mimicking the other gentleman and racing as hard as you can when did you did you just keep listening to yourself like you know what this works for me or did you ever try to like you know what i'm the other pros now you're in europe are eating this and well it started before i i started my changing my training from the other riders around me um about 1996 so we're up in fresno we're training we're we're sponsored by nutrafig it's a fig san joaquin fig company up in in fresno um, they sell figs all over it's all around the world and the team's called nutrafig and so we're staying at one of the owner's house there we're out training most of the most of the pros in those days domestically were probably doing about 400 miles a week that was pretty normal at that point in time i decided i'd already been i turned pro in 95 in those days, you can turn pro just by buying a license. So anyone on the street could buy a license mm. in 95 and turn pro. And so what had happened when 96 comes around, it's early February, we're training with, with the guys, and I just decided from now on, I'm going to go big. <laughs> I'm going to train big as I can. Okay. And so I'd ride with the guys from Nutrafig, and they'd get back to the house and maybe they rode 75 miles and I'd say, I'm gonna go do another hour and a half. And at that point in time, it wasn't looked upon as intelligent to ride that big. Right. Even nowadays, it's not really looked upon to ride. To ride as big as I rode, it's, it's not, not many athletes do it. So 400, 450, occasionally you can have those 500 mile weeks, but um, I was starting to do six and even seven. and. So early on in 96, when I start training more, we finish ride at 75 miles, we come back to the sponsor's house and everyone's ready to jump into jacuzzi and hang out and watch some movies and go to bed and get ready for the ride the next day. And I'm like, I'm gonna train a little bit more. And so I just started going out a little bit longer than everybody else. And we end up going to those NorCal races that are so popular in February and stuff like that. And at the time when I was training more, everyone especially the director said, ah, you're crazy, this is just junk miles. And so we show up at the first race and I'm in the front group. (laughs) So from that point on, I just realized that the more miles I trained, the better I became. And most teams that I went to found that always thought I overtrained. Yeah. (laughs) But yet I was the top rider on the team. So when you look at the coaches, you look at the directors, most of the time they just couldn't understand the the type of training I was doing and thought I was crazy. <laughs> Some teams would outright argue with me and I wouldn't change it. It'd be crazy, you know, you'd be crazy to change a winning formula, so I wouldn't change, but they would, you're, you're doing way too much. There's no way you could ride six hours and then go to the bike race two days later. And I always thought so many riders would taper their training for a week before the, yeah. before the main objective, right? They, they train two months hard focus like crazy Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden one week out they taper and i always found that anytime i tapered the form just disappeared yeah as soon as i did after three days after three easy days i would just start losing form so i just never tapered i'd go into big races um sometimes riding the day before it if i went to philadelphia in the 90s and early 2000s it was a week-long race was U.S. Pro Championships, and it ended at Philly, but you had um, 
Lancaster and Trenton and then the Philadelphia race. So it was about a, about a week, two weekends long. And so I can remember landing before we were going to race um, Trenton and stuff. And I'm doing six hours, two days before the race. And the guys on the team are crazy. Like, I'm the last guy to show up. Like, the, the bikes are washed. The guys have showered. They're getting ready to eat dinner. And I'm showing up, and it's just getting dark, handing off my bike to the mechanic. And he's just, like, looking at me like I'm crazy. And I walk in, shower, show up at the dinner. Next day, you do a little spin. And then next day at the race, I'm good. So uh, when I looked at it as a kid... And everyone's telling you you're wrong, but the results are telling me I'm right. Everything you're reading, the, the information, the results is all that matters. It doesn't matter what you did as long as your your performance performance is good on the weekend. And if it's and if it's the best and you're winning on the weekend, but your teammates were telling you you're doing wrong like, well, who's, two days who ago, won? who's wrong? <laughs> I I can't uh, wrap my head around it yeah. myself. Uh, can you explain it? Like, what? How do you? Uh, how does? I re- recover exceptionally well. Okay. Uh, anytime. The only thing that, that I know physically is when I go in, and every year when you're a professional athlete, you go in and you do checkups, right? It's UCI mm-hmm. rules, so you yeah. have to go in, do your echo, do you have your lungs checked out, Perfect. do your echogram. So they're they're measuring your heart, they're okay. measuring your lungs and all that, and so. Most of the time when I see a new doctor, anytime he's looking at my lungs, they always are like, wow, it's really big. Like it's, okay. it's filled every cavity in your body. <laughs> and then when they look at my heart, I always get, every time when it's a new doctor, I always get like, wow, wow. So like, your like cardiac we're, we're almost We're almost like, I'm like, what, is there something wrong? And then finally they'll go like, it's really big for a guy yeah. your size. And, and so what I always found though, especially with the stage races and the big training was that I could do a hundred miles or 120 mile training day and I could turn around and do it the next day. I could turn around and do it the next day and I could turn around and do it the next day after that. I didn't need three days to recover from one hard day of training. It, it literally could just go from Absolutely. day after day. I could, I could have a 600, 700 mile week which if, you're, if your listeners understand what that means, if you, you have a 600-mile week and there's only seven days in the week, you know you trained a lot. If you had a 700-mile week, which was more rare, I didn't have so many 700s, but six, 650 was all the time. 550, all the time. You know, To go under 500 was rare when you're really focused during the season. You could go in, I could go in to do the Tour de France with a 550-mile week the week before the tour starts. That is absolutely like so. mind blowing to hear the statistics. I wasn't going to, this wasn't a, something I was going to ask, but just quick numbers. Do you have, what was your FTP? I don't know. I never did. You <laughs> never did. <laughs> I could go out though. I could leave my house in San Diego. So I never, <laughs> FTP always, I always laughed at those numbers. And stuff. What about your VO2 um, max? I never had a check. No? Oh, no. wow. So well, I hated I hated lab work. Okay. And there's no way I was going to do it. Even when I have done lab work, because I've done it. There's teams that force you to do it. But even when I'm forced to do it, I would never give 100%. I'm like, why would I give 100% in the lab? It means nothing. Every time. I love this. Every time. See, this is what I mean about bad coaches, too. Bad coaches, bad labs, bad, bad doctors, uh-huh. 
that, that are trained to read all these labs that don't, they're not professional athletes. They're reading these labs and don't know anything. They've never been a professional athlete. They, I'll give you a prime example. I, I end up, my career ended because of a lung issue. So oh. I'm over at National Jewish Hospital in Denver, Colorado. Best lung hospital, supposedly world renowned. They can solve any problems. They, they couldn't solve me, but I'm there and I'm doing this test and they keep lowering the oxygen number and, and you put a clip on your nose, yeah. you put a mouthpiece in and the nurse says, breathe normal. So I breathe normal. She keeps clicking the altitude down lower and lower and lower so you have less oxygen levels. And I keep breathing normal. And I'm breathing normal and you're going from 97% oxygenated levels all the way down into to basically gets into the 70s and then they start freaking out because I'm still breathing normal. She finally stops the test. I pull the mouthpiece out, piece out and now I'm breathing hard, right? Because it's caught up to me. Okay. Okay, so <clears throat> the doctor there at National Jewish, they're fine doctors, they're fabulous, they're the best in the world, but they don't understand professional athletes. Okay, professional athletes don't fit in their box. This is the biggest problem all doctors have with professional athletes is they don't fit in their box, okay? And so my doctor calls me up, I'm back home at my house in Ben, and he says, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and I said, what? And, he's, and he goes, you flatlined the machine. And I was Whoa. like, uh, okay, I don't know what that means. Why <laughs> yeah. don't you, I have no idea what you mean. Other than, I saw, other than I saw the nurse freak out a little bit when I did the test. And so he goes, we have never seen anyone flatline the machine and you did. And I was like, okay, but so what? What does that mean? And, he, and he's like, well, something in your brain's not telling you to breathe harder when we kept dropping the oxygenated levels down, you should have been breathing harder. I started laughing. I said, of course, my brain's telling me to breathe harder, but the nurse told me breathe normal for as long as you can, basically, she said. The way I understood the instructions was breathe normal and we're gonna keep making this progressively harder on you and you breathe normal for as long as you can. That's what I did. As a professional athlete, anytime when you see somebody going up Alpe d'Huez, and they're battling out and they're fighting with each other and they're trying to win the stage or to win the Tour de France, you don't have the ability to all of a sudden just lose control of your breathing. You have to keep control of your breathing at all the time. Now, when you watch any, any big bike race in the world or any professional sport in the world, every athlete's controlling their breathing until they cross that line and that's why you see them fall down on the ground and try to catch up the breathing wasn't that they didn't feel it before, it was that they know they have to control their breathing until they cross that line. Once you cross that line, you get, then you have to play catch up, right? And so I'm telling the doctor this, and I say, doc, you don't understand, I'm a professional athlete. He goes, no, 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 we deal with athletes all the time. And I started giggling, right? I love the giggle, everyone that knows me knows that. So I start giggling at the doctor, because I always love it when somebody is so sure that they know their job, but don't. And so the doctor's like, we deal with athletes, professional athletes all the time here. And I started giggling. I go, no, 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 no. You don't deal with professional athletes at all. You guys deal with Olympic athletes and you think they're professionals. All the Olympic athletes are amateurs. The professional athletes are the ones that take it beyond the Olympics and ones that win Grand Tour like I did and show up and flatline your machine. <laughs> I go, 
you're dealing with an athlete that's 18, 19 years old. How good can they be? Now, we all know nowadays they're getting better at younger ages and stuff like that too, but that's of still rarity. Tade Pogacar, Egon Bernal, those athletes that are 21 years old, that's new. That's not, that's not, that's really recent. In general, most 20-year-olds don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And they haven't perfected it. How can they be professional when they're still in school? I mean, they're, you know, they're 16, 17, 18 years old. They're still in high school. Then they go to the Olympics or they, sorry, they go to the national team and they're training at the Olympic training center. And now they're showing up at this hospital and this doctor thinks he's dealing with professionals. And I start laughing and that's not a professional. You think he's a professional. I'm a professional. He's not a professional. I go, I was able to flatline your machine because for 25 years as a professional, now I'm two, three years out of the sport when I'm at his hospital trying to find whatever health issue problem I got that they can hopefully solve. But I could still control my breathing because for 25 years I could. And yeah. so, the, but the doctor can't think out of the box, right? He's, he still thinks when I look at someone at the Olympic Training Center, I see amateurs. I don't see professionals. Most of the whole world looks at an Olympic athlete and thinks these are the best in the world. Now, when it comes to gymnastics, track and field, and sports like that, they are the best in the world at the Olympics. When, you, when you're talking about, you know, other sports though, where there's actual paid sports and paid professionals, it's something different, right? Yeah. When, you talk, when, when you're looking at 18 or 20 year old kid that's on the national team training at the Olympic Training Center, he is not a professional, he's not the best in the world. Yeah. But wow. Let's let's put it as fact. We all know your listeners will probably now be like, "Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. They're not. They're not Olympic athletes are not the pros. The pros are the pros." <laughs> now, of course, they're blending nowadays and and now you can be pro and come and yeah. do the Olympics because I did the Olympics in 2012 and stuff. So it's different now. But in general, when you're looking when we're going back to that story with the doctor at National Jewish, every athlete he's seen is a 20 year old kid how much how pro can he be yeah. he's a 20 year old kid there's a few exceptions Tade Pogacar and a few others but in general that's that's a really rare gym right there and it's not normal so when you when you look at athletes you have to take everything of exactly mm -hmm. what you're looking at where's their experience how long have they done it for and what they're doing so all those things kind of fit where when I'm training now when I look at my training I do what works for me, and then if it's working, I stay with it. So when back in the day in 96, when the team's arguing, they're going, you're doing junk miles. At the time, in February of 96, they could be right. I wasn't sure. It was the first time I'd yeah. ever started training really big. But all I knew is 95, 94, 93, 92, 91 wasn't enough to win. Whatever yeah. I was doing in those years, I was good but I wasn't great and I wanted to get better or I need to go find a job. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, if I've done all that kind of training through 91, 92, 94, all the way up to 96, I have to change something in 96 or it's time to go find a job. And the only thing I can change 100% at that point in time that I knew for sure, up the mileage, start training bigger, start resting more, start, stop playing around, stop, stop partying, stop drinking. Uh, the only thing I didn't know in 96 though was diet. 
Okay. So I didn't figure out diet and I don't know, it was probably like 2009 or something like that when I finally figured out diet. But I trained so big that when you're eating fast food in those early years, because I was eating fast food 10 times a week. Okay, so if you 10 times a week, you do the math, there's only seven days, you know a lot of those days are double days, right? You had it for breakfast, you had it for lunch, or you had it for dinner or something like that. Easily twice a day, multiple times throughout the week. Um, but I was training so big, it was just like a big mm. furnace and you're just burning everything up. Could I have been thinner, lighter, faster, and better? Sure, I would have been if I'd known how to do diet then. But remember in the 90s, there wasn't the internet. There wasn't that mm -hmm. for sure information. And since I was racing domestically and winning domestically, why would I want to change the diet? <laughs> it was I'm eating. I'm telling you, I'm going, I'm going to the races <laughs> with the, with the Nutrafig team. And it's the night before the race. It's 11 oh o'clock at night. I'm hungry. I borrow the team van. I go to Taco Bell. I come back. <laughs> I have Taco Bell at like 11 midnight. I have a Coke at 1 a.m. And I go to bed, wake up at 9, go to the race, and I win. Why would I change it? So... <laughs> I mean, why would I change it? When your viewers are listening, like, why would, why would you be able to eat whatever you want? And I'm eating whatever I want as much as I want. I have no diet. There is no diet other than whatever you want. My diet's whatever I want. If I'm hungry at midnight, I eat at midnight. If I ate McDonald's for breakfast, I, I've eaten McDonald's on the way to bike races and won the bike race. And while my teammates were eating pasta. <laughs> and I look at them and I win the bike race and they're eating pasta and I just had McDonald's. And I'm thinking like, who's crazy here? Like, they're calling me crazy, but who's crazy? I just had McDonald's and won the bike race, and these guys are eating pasta. <laughs> so what did you change, and why did you change it? Okay, so I think it's 2009. I was riding with Astana, and I crashed. I was doing Tour of California, and I crashed and messed up my knee. I had some deep knee bruising. Okay. Uh, barely got through the race. Got through the race on painkillers. Okay. I was I was messed up. Like the knee was super swollen. The bone was bruised and stuff. And the team just gets me through the race with painkillers. This is the only way. Race finishes. My leg is yeah. Uh, every stage. So it happened maybe stage three or four early in the race. And there was no way. It was too important of an event. Tour of California was massive for the team. And it was too important to drop out. And it was the same year we were racing down here. We were doing Palomar that year. So your, your viewers can look it up if they want the exact date. But I want to say 2009. And so each stage, after the stage, my leg is blowing up. Uh, it looks ugly. And then <laughs> I start the next day. And it's painful like crazy. But you just fight your way through the race. And as the race goes, the leg is shrinking. I was going back to normal, right? So by the end of the race, it's leaned out, and then an hour, two hours later, it's blown up again. Yeah. So I know there's a problem. The doc knows there's a problem. The team knows there's a problem. Uh, but we got to get through the race because it's all hands on deck, right? We can't afford to lose anybody. If we want to win, we got to have everyone. So you just got to suffer and suck it up. So I did, and and the race finishes. I come back to my San Diego house here, where I was living in Terrasana. And my doctor's always been um, Alan Richburg. He, he does uh, uh, sports medicine, UC sports medicine right down here in the Sereno Valley. So he's been my doctor for forever. Oh, okay. So I call him up and I say, hey, Richburg, I got to come in. Uh, my knee is like jacked up. Jacked up. Like <laughs> it is sore. Like 
I mean, it was there was no definition. It would just be like like this, you know, coming around. You couldn't even see a calf. It was just one big one big ball there. And uh, so I go in there, and he does you know does the MRI, takes a look at it. We send the results to the team doctor um, over in Europe, and he's like, yeah, you got deep knee bruising. You're gonna need probably two weeks off. But I was riding really good and I put a lot of effort into California, so I didn't want to lose that form. And my wife is a profession ex-professional rider too. Um, super intelligent and you know how women are. Women are fantastic, <laughs> especially when it comes to diet, because women have the the what is the word I'm looking for? The the unhappiness of only being able to eat like 1200 1500 calories oh a day yeah yeah we, we pay the price much harder <laughs> right exactly, yeah we right? can't we can't okay. afford it <laughs> so now this i'd never experienced this in my life oh really gained, dieting you gained weight no 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 i didn't gain i didn't, I didn't gain <laughs> that was the opposite um when katura california finished and i found out i needed time off the bike i i, I went to my wife and i said okay i, I want to start dieting so, and I knew, of course, by that point in time, I'm, I'm uh, 30 something years old. So I understand the general theme around dieting. You know, you eat candy bars, Cokes, you're going to gain weight, but if you're training big, you're not. So why do I care? But now I can't train at all. And so I want to be more specific of what all the calories are. I, I'm hundred percent aware you eat a chocolate a whole chocolate cake you got a problem okay <laughs> but what i really find trying to find out from my wife is the exact numbers what is the exact number that i can get away with mm. without gaining weight and i want to drop a little bit of weight before i get back to the next race without training so uh, she starts explaining to me all the different calories what's in them plate of pasta what's in a salad what's mm -hmm. what's in your candy bar what's in your soda and again i have a pretty good idea but i don't have the exact numbers so she's explaining the more of the exact numbers because females like yourself have to be aware of what the exact numbers is because a female weighing 110 pounds could eat 115 calories maybe 1200 calories is all you guys are allowed throughout the day <laughs> unless you're going to add some exercise to it versus a male, we're good for like 2,500, right? <laughs> Boy, you, you. It's, a, it's a big, without training, without it's training. a lot, lot more food. <laughs> without training, a guy my size is good for 2,000 pounds, 2,000 calories, and you won't gain any weight. Uh, a, a standard woman that's 5'2", that's 5'5", yep. five, five is 1,200, 1,500 calories. That's not a lot. Okay, so, of course, because my wife was professional, she knows the exact numbers. So she's explaining the exact numbers in more detail to me. So we start dieting, we start uh, looking after things, and I actually drop weight during that time while my knee's recovering. Mm. And I go back to the Basque country, and I go, probably took maybe just three, four pounds off. Nothing big. When I was racing domestically, I was probably about 143 to 147. Um, so you're fluctuating that much. Now I'm going back over to Europe, and I'm a solid 141. And, and so I'm at least two pounds better than my best weight, but maybe four or five better than my average weight. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty significant. And as that happens, it, it starts, I start realizing that, wow, over in Europe, that, those few extra pounds make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then I start taking it even further. Next thing you know, I'm 139 and I'm 138 and racing 137. And then I'm in the front group 
and I'm like 35 years old now, and I'm in the front group. Uh, every every race, not winning, but in the front group. Wow. Last group of five, last group of ten, or something. If if I'm racing for Alberto Contador, I'm covering and bringing back the best attacks in the world and bringing it back for him and delivering them to the last few kilometers to go on the last climb for him to go win a race. And so that's what I started seeing that diet could do. Now remember, for your listeners, when I did most of my years domestically, it didn't matter. I, yeah. I, so why would I change it? But now when I'm racing over in Europe, if you want to go that next level, okay, it's, now I'm like see the, the benefit to changing it. But when I was racing in the U.S., why would I care? Why would you want to weigh? Why would you want to be that thin? And, and let's be face it, as all your female listeners know, that miserable yeah. to diet that strictly and stuff. And then, you know, it's hard. And men too. I mean, men are, are just as interested in getting oh, lean. If, now if for not, sure, but not even, as a whole. Not as a whole. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's be fair to the women race out there. Like, you guys suffer more than we do. <laughs> So, um, and I know we're, at, I, I don't know how much time, so I, I don't want to take up, I mean, I, I, was just, I just, we felt like we just got started, so I may have to have another day with you. <laughs> well, we're going to have to go inside for sure, because it's getting chilly. It is getting chilly. Um, my, I mean, this is a lot to absorb just for myself. Right. I'm just listening to this and just recognizing who I'm sitting across from and, the stories you're telling me are like you you are a different breed than what I've ever seen in my life. So I, again, I'm very um, humbled to talk with you. So thank you for for this. And I mean, we haven't even talked about the mindset of racing and you know getting to that level. What are some of like like I don't want to say I guess lessons that you have taken from your years of racing and how do they f- affect your life now? Like. What have, what have you taken from all of the experiences or the biggest the biggest thing for me personally was just not to let somebody else control my training when as a person I really love to just follow mm-hmm. I, I, especially being a bike racer not when you're racing, but everywhere else in life, I love to just follow because you could just turn the brain off, right? Mm-hmm. I don't need to know if we're going on vacation. I I don't need to know all the whereabouts. I don't need to know every minute detail. I don't want to know every minute detail. I just want to follow and get there. But what I learned as a professional athlete was when it came to me specifically, I needed to make sure that nobody was controlling the important moments of my day. So when it came to my training, no one controls my training, no one controls my diet, no one controls uh, my sleep, my rest, my stretching, the important things that set me up to be 100% at the bike race. And teams want to control everything these athletes are doing. I mean everything, and I hated that. I hated going to January training camp with the European team and you're showing up there with 30 guys the best in the world. We're talking about, you know, these are the best riders in the world. You take any pro tour team out there, world tour team, they are the best in the world. As much as, you know, even on my own show, I'll make jokes about a rider. Like, he's just, you know, he's not that good or is this, they're the best in the world, okay? But we're comparing them to the best. 
And so I don't think you can take 30 guys, have them show up at the same hotel in Spain in January training camp and train all 30 guys the same way when you don't know where they've come from the month before. What were they doing the month before? And at no point in time when I was with any team did they ever say, Chris, what'd you do the month before the training started? To, to, and then say, let's analyze your training and let's, let's, let's make the training perfect so that you progress all the way through training camp. And so what your viewers need to understand, especially the ones that are getting coaching, they need to make sure their coach is good. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem. You don't know if your coach is any good because you don't know what, how to ride a bike. And so it gets really difficult, right? Uh, not you personally, but in general as a whole. No, I if, if you're asking for that. a coach, most like if you're new to the sport, whatever sport it happens to be, and you don't know anything about that sport other than you want to ride your bike, you like riding your bike, you've done some group rides, you really don't know enough to know if the guy coaching you is any good. What has he done? So you have to know what he's done. And then here's the really difficult part. A coach could be a fabulous coach that, that has never raced his bike, but understands um, the, the, all the aspects of being a great athlete. Um, does your coach understand the psychological side of the sport? Does your coach understand the family side at home mm -hmm. when you said, I couldn't train on Christmas Day because my parents flew over and I haven't seen them in two years, I have to spend the day with them. Does your coach understand that? Does your coach understand if you're female that there's times when it just doesn't work, <laughs> okay? You know, does, if you get on the scale, you're female, you get on the scale, you gain three, three pounds, you, we all know it's possible to gain five if you're female on the wrong time. Does your coach understand that? Does, does your coach, like a good coach has to understand everything. Yeah. Okay, they have to understand the psychological side. They have to understand the pressures of life. Don't even get me started on how much complicated, more complicated it is for women to become a professional athlete versus a male. A woman comes in to be a professional athlete. Now the job isn't open there to pay as well. Mm -hmm. So she's financially giving up a lot financially. Uh, all athletes are starting when they're what, 18 to 22, mm -hmm. so they're going through the 30. So what female out there, yeah. parent isn't saying, when are you gonna get married and have kids? <laughs> okay, so then you have the pressure of that. So does your coach understand those pressures? Does he understand that sometimes you just can't diet today because you needed a day to have some chocolate? Yeah. You know, um, does he understand how important it is the week before the race to still be fit, still be 100% focused. As you get closer and closer to an event, everything has to become more and more precise. The further you are mm -hmm. away from the event, the more you can make mistakes. As you get closer and closer to the event, things have to become more and more precise. Does your coach know that three months out that you can't train for two days because your family came in, you haven't seen them, to say, hey, this is a perfect time yeah. to see your family. Don't worry about it. We're three months out. We can fix two days. And just, just make it known and kind of, you know, but let's not do this three weeks out. You know, we can't fix it three weeks out. But three months, don't worry. Take it easy, relax, and relieve the pressure off you. Because remember, you're talking about an 18, 20-year-old 
male or female, but they're kids, right? I don't care if you're 20, 22, 25, you're still a kid. We all know at your age and my age, we know at 25 you're still a kid, right? So there's all kinds of pressures. So does your coach understand that? So a coach has to do everything. And what I found throughout my career, you can find a guy that's good at one or two, but the fine guy that has that whole package that's, that's really good, that is rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what always scared me. Every time I ran into uh, different teams, they always wanted somebody to coach me. And I'd look at it and be like, no, you're not yeah. the whole picture here. But will I take some important advice? Yeah. Will I look at something you say and understand it and look at it and check it from all different angles and see if I can use it? Absolutely. But I always found there was holes everywhere. And so the most important thing I learned was mainly if it's working for me and someone tells me that that's crazy, but yet I just got a result out of it, I'm not changing it. Now, would I listen? And for sure. But, you know, to go back to the teams, right now to this day, this is what, January 5th or 6th today? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, All the training camps start uh, this week, basically. The most important training camps for the European team start this week. They're going to put 30 guys together. No one's going to ask what they did last month or care what they did last month, really. They're going to, okay, they're going to ask, but they're not going to ask everyone. And they're certainly not going to ask the young kid who's not important on the team. And they're, <laughs> and they're going to make all these guys train the same. So I remember with Lotto, I get there and we have training in Spain. And is Peter Van Pettigem was on the team. Dude's a legend. I mean, legend. Wins one-day classics all over the place chiseled beautiful specimen beautiful (laughs) (laughs) okay he chiseled everything i mean this guy is fit and ready to go and it's january 10th give or take a day we're going up this climb outside of denia and it's a pretty good climb it's probably six percent maybe seven percent we're going up this thing incredibly fast he's sitting down his cell phone rings he pulls it out of his pocket and he starts talking on his cell phone (laughs) I'm swinging on the back back there, like holding on for dear life out of the saddle, sprinting like crazy, and he's talking on his cell phone. And I'm thinking, like, I don't need to train with this guy, okay? This is not the way to get fit. So, it, and it's not, it's, it's, he was on a different level than I was at that point in time. Can I get to his level? Absolutely, for sure. But I need another month, I need another six weeks. When, but yet no one on the team, when I said the next day, hey, I'm not training with these guys. Cause so, so there's a big fight on the team, right? I go out the next day, I ride an hour with the team, I go back to the car, I grab a Coke and a <laughs> snack, and as soon as the next right comes, I, I sneak off right, I pull over, I have a Coke and a snack, because I gotta recover, because I just got done riding on the wheel of Peter Van Pettigem for an hour and a half. And now I got to recover, and then I go do my own three-hour ride at my pace. And by the end of the 10 days of training camp, now I'm starting to get really fit. The guys who were really on form to begin with, like Peter Van Pettigam and the other great guys who were getting ready for the classics, those guys come out strong. But the ones who didn't come out, they're wrecked. They got to go back now to their house, and they got to recover for six days a week. Yeah. Right? Before versus... Because I only did an hour, hour and a half with the team, and then I did my own two to three hour training ride at my pace, now I'm leaving the seven, eight, nine, ten day race or training block. I'm ready to go home, and as soon as I get home, I can start doing five, six yep. hours again. Yeah. And, and 
you know, if training camp started the 7th of January and went to the 20th or went to the 15th, if you need a week off, now all of a sudden you've lost one week. There's only four weeks in a month. You just gave up one third of your month, one month before the season begins. And I mean, for some of these guys, the season's beginning February 1st yeah. or February 5th, you know, starts at Hetvolk, like Peter Van Pettigam. And that was a major objective for him. So if I told the team, if I wanted the team to slow down, that doesn't make sense to Peter Van Pettigam. But to me, oh, absolutely. it does. So I got to oh, pull I... off and do my own thing. So it's very reassuring, but, honestly, to hear that, that right? you, you, I, I completely 200% agree with you that. have to do yeah. it. And you can't imagine like the amount of flack that I took from the team. Uh, I had direct, I had directors come in and this was my first year back in Europe, right? It was a second year back in Europe, but first time with the Belgium team. And, and the team comes up to me and they're like, you know, you got to be racing in a month. And I said, yeah. I That's absolutely exactly. know. That's why I can't train with Peter Van Pettigam because he's going to kill me. If I train with him, he's going to these, – these next 7, 10 days, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to need a week or two to recover, and then the race starts two weeks later. I need to leave here, and I need to keep training the next day after I get off the flight. So I need to leave here, not completely wrecked, get on the flight, fly back to San Diego or stay in Spain, wherever I was, happened to be that year. And, and then start training the next day. Otherwise, my form's gonna drop. So throughout my career, the most important thing really was just having enough belief in yourself to know that what you're doing is right mm -hmm. and then stick with it no matter what somebody's telling you. Yeah. You know, and, and remember, if it's right, it's right. If, it's, if, it, if you've wasted a year or two or three years and it hasn't happened, then you do need to change it around. But yeah. at that point in time, at that age, I was 34 years old. I knew what worked. And now make sure nobody can touch it and no one can change it. Because if you get dropped at training camp, everyone will talk about how bad form you had at training camp. But if you win the races, you still get a contract for the next year. If you win training camp, they will all talk about how fabulous you were at training camp. <laughs> and then if you get dropped at the races all year long, you won't have a contract. So which way do you want it? <laughs> Very so. That's amazing. Okay, last question. Oh my goodness, this is great. Um, what do you miss the most that now that you've been retired two years? Uh, that's, that's two. It's impossible to pin it down to one. I mean, oh. the, easiest, the easiest thing to pin it down is you miss winning. Okay. okay. But, but the most, you know, you only win what, a few races a year, one race a year. Uh, my best year, I probably won 13, and That's some years I didn't win at all. And then a couple times when I won Spain, I, I, I won Spain, and I won two stages, and that was it for the year. Um, and, and so as bike racer, you don't get to win that often, right? So that's an amazing feeling. But as a whole, the biggest thing I miss is the just the feeling of being inside the professional peloton mm. and that flow of the group mm. so when i'm watching the races for the youtube channel that i do i i'm watching the races and i can feel mm. that same sensation if it's raining i could smell the rain if it's if they're if oh. it gets stressful i could feel the stress that the riders are are getting if the camera angle is coming from the side or it's a helicopter angle or front on to the riders, I see the riders as from behind the way I would when I was racing. So even though I'm watching it from a side view, 
I'm seeing the back of the rider as I'm watching the race. Um, so it's, it's been really weird for me to transition to not being an athlete or not being a professional athlete because I still ride all the time, but not being a professional athlete. It's weird to transition out of it because you don't have that. You don't get that same sensation, what it feels like to ride in the group all the time. Yeah. You know, it, I came down here. I've been in San Diego since uh, Thanksgiving, more or less. And I've been doing the group rides, of course, with, with your boy Pete. And that brings a little bit of that uh, sensation okay. back. It's not the same. But, you know, it's a fourth or a fifth of it or something. But it brings something back. And so even to come down here and just ride my bike every day and then go on the group rides, uh, that is vacation for me. So people oh. are funny. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just riding my bike. That's <laughs> is that why you created the butterfly effect? Your YouTube channel was for you to kind of stay in there? I created the butterfly effect because I started working for NBC. Oh. And when, when I do the NBC commentate for the Tour de France, it's the biggest race in the world and you're not, you don't have a whole lot of practice. And so I started the butterfly effect to get practice for NBC, and this was big. On NBC, there is not time like you and I have had right here to discuss what's going on in the races, what's going on tactically, what's really going on in the race. There's so little bit of time on TV because we want to show the race, right? NBC has to yeah. show the race. So you have to be, bam, straight to the point. This is that. But that's not enough, you can't do it. Right now, sitting here at the table, we've talked about three or four different subjects, and, but it's taken us an hour and 15 minutes or whatever it's been. So NBC doesn't give you that much time. When you're watching, I do pre and post Tour de France coverage, and if you watch a 30 minute show, by the time you take the commercials out, by the time you do the intro and the exit after and before the commercials, there's 15 minutes, maybe 12, now there's three of us up there, so you got about five minutes, maybe three minutes for a 30-minute show. Your wow. viewers watched it, and they're like, wow, we got to watch 30 minutes pre-tour, and we got to watch a 45-minute post-tour. But I, it's five minutes, maybe, for me to, to actually explain something. You can't explain anything in five minutes. So what I wanted with the butterfly effect is I wanted, I wanted to analyze the races. I wanted to coach the viewers that are watching and fans of the Butterfly Effect about what's happening in the bike race um, from what I believe is, is the most accurate view. Now there's, from every view in the race, there's 150 to 200 riders in all these races. So every, every scenario is different for each rider. So I have to take about what I believe all the riders had witnessed and sum it up for you guys when you're watching the butterfly effect. And, and so some people will call it a recap show and I get insulted because it's not <laughs> a recap show. It's coaching, it's analyzing the race, it's explaining the race, yeah. it's taking the viewers into a pro rider's pers real yep. perspective of what happened on that race. Yeah. And and that's a perspective that I'm trying to take from multiple different angles. Because remember, I only get the TV angles. A lot of viewers think that because they watched it on TV, they saw everything that happened in the race. TV does not show everything that happens in the race. So the butterfly effect, since I know when the camera's not there what's still happening because I raced 25 years of a pro, I can fill in some gaps in between the commercials 
and the different camera angles for the viewers of the butterfly effect. So those that are listening to the butterfly effect, I can coach, I can, I can analyze the race, I can tell you what's happening That's in the valuable. race. Valuable, fantastic. That, that TV yeah. angle didn't show you. My best, okay, every once in a while it's a recap, but I always <laughs> try to avoid a recap. I even hate that word to be associated okay, with. Okay, I will never say anyone, that. Because <laughs> anyone could recap anything. Um, so I want, it, I want it to be a more precise, and I want it to be educational, and I want the viewers, when they get done watching it, that they learn something new and they go, wow, I didn't see that. So every time I'm watching the race, I'm trying to pick something out at some moment that the commentators didn't see and that the fans probably didn't see. And I'll go back. Hopefully it's on camera, but it's not always on camera. If it's not on camera, I have to say this is what I believe happened. If it's on camera, that is fantastic because now I can take the pictures from, from the camera, post them up uh, to the butterfly effect, and I can say this is what's happening right here. This writer's thinking this. This writer's thinking this. This writer's thinking that. This is what really happened when it all came together. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's analyzing, coaching, explaining cycling, especially tactics, uh, but not a recap. <laughs> awesome. Well, with that, I have taken much of your time. Um, it has been so great to meet you and hear your stories. Um, so thank you so much. Do you have any last? No, no, thanks. No, it's fun. This, this it's is always, great. Yeah, it's always fun just, you know, shooting from the cuff and, and having a good time. Hopefully everyone enjoyed it. Oh, yes. Thank you. And here's a little bonus uh, recording. After we stopped the interview, uh, we stayed and hung out and talked a little bit. And we were talking about raising a family and some, some of the work-life balance. So here's a little bit of um, unscripted, just off-the-cuff um, interview with Chris Warner. I'm not pro anymore, so I can't justify going out and riding 100 miles and then come back and be like, no, nah, man, we're on vacation in San Diego. Yeah. This is it. You get to hang out here, and that's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you got to, like, suck it up. You got to go jump on the bike. So I ride two hours or something like that, go spin on my bike, and then I come back, and I take the little guy for a spin on the trails or something like that, or we go catch a movie or we go to yeah. dinner or something like that. Um, but when you're back in the day when it's pro, you can't fit two hours riding them up to the park and then let them run around the park while you're sitting on your feet and stuff and then jump back on your bike so my kids honestly my kids always just thought I was broken oh <laughs> they're, just, they're just like dad's dad's tired you know what I mean and so so okay it's not hard like you you do their baseball games and their soccer games and that kind of stuff because you're just sitting here like we are right now watching and cheering that's stuff you can do right uh, but now like for example when we were up in Bend, Oregon, I'm at my boys' baseball game. I just get back from the classic races, and I'm getting ready to do Tour of California, which was massive for Radio mm -hmm. Shack. And it's 40 degrees and raining while they're playing baseball. And I got to get up and leave. You got to be like, no. Nope. So, so, you know, luckily I got amazing in-laws, like, like um, unbelievable. Grandma and Grandpa are, are from another planet, like amazing. And, and so those days when they knew I'm getting ready to go do tour of California in three weeks and I just got back from Europe. So I need to recover from Europe and get ready for tour of California. And it's raining at 40 degrees. When I look at them and I'm, and they're like, yeah, we got this. Don't worry. Take off. You know what I mean? And so, uh, your kids saw you there at the beginning. You took them there. You saw, you, you got to watch them hit a couple times, but you didn't get all nine innings. Right. 
but grandma and grandpa are there. But that's a sacrifice that you. Yeah, it's a big sacrifice. Huge. Yeah, it's big. So, so it's it's another. Yeah, and it's another thing, and it's like I told you with coaching is, um, coaches, and I haven't ran across many, if any, that that understand that whole package from every angle possible. Yeah, Um, and especially especially the emotional side. You know, yeah, the the French um, director that brought me over to FDJ, he wasn't a good, in terms of training coach, but he was really good emotionally to know, like, you need to go back home. Yeah. And so one day I'm just cracked over in France and get done with the race, and he's like, we got to get you a flight home. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's... so, and so, but that's what a, a good coach has to do everything, right? You really, you know, that's, and that's what I sometimes what I hate about coaching and sometimes what I love about it is is that you know you'll you'll tell different people you're talking to and you're like no no you you don't understand you 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 can't go out and party you know but then at some point in time you got to realize if your athlete just did three weeks non-stop and was perfect then you got to be like okay it's time to go out and party you know you got to go relax a little bit you yeah. Know, if you're getting ready for a big, big event, then it's a two-month window where you got to be that 100% focused and stuff. But you know, like I was saying, the closer you get to an event, the yeah, more. So you got to hopefully give them some time over here so that they're better here mm-hmm. or something. Um, and if you know, if you got an Australian <laughs> athlete, you're fucked. <laughs> they honestly, they're gonna ride better if you do let them party. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so. <laughs> Wow. Well, right? this is, yeah. So when do you go back? Uh, anytime. I'm probably going to do the group ride Saturday, and then I'm going to try to get out of here Sunday. So hopefully I can get Well, out you got Sunday. great weather, too. Yeah, it's snowing up there big time right now. Oh, like oh, you're going to, yeah, you're going to get, here, you're gonna get spring yeah. weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For here, yeah. I mean, well, you got kind of right. crappy weather during the Christmas, but. Yeah, that was bad. It was like 80s, though, before that. Mm-hmm. 80s, and then it got mm-hmm. the colder stuff, and then now it's not bad. That's pretty good. So. Yeah. So, Welcome back. Lots of fun stories and some heavy topics. It did take me a few days to absorb all this information. I think his saying about the 100% commitment 24 hours a day is a theme that joins his career together. It was all about cycling and about not just being his best, but about being the best. Thank you for joining me on Local Legends. Rock on, and until next time, bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Local Legends. If you are enjoying the podcast and look forward to the next guest, please consider supporting this effort through Patreon. A few bucks a month helps this effort. Visit patreon.com backslash outdoor fitness coach, all one word. Thank you.